is um, John 4, 1 to 26. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard what Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob gave his son to Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, asks a drink from me, a Sumerian woman, for Jews have no dealings with Sumerians. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, so you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susie. Um, I want to confess at the outset um, that I've had a lot of trouble uh, and struggle with this message and pray that God's will will be done um, with the words that I speak. So let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will keep 
our ears attuned to your words in this matter that Susie just read to us, your, your holy scriptures. And they speak to each of our hearts, Heavenly Father. Help us to have ears to hear. Amen. The topic I was given to speak on this morning is, is outreach. And please don't think that I'm going to stand up here and say I know a great deal about it. Um, I'm going to rely what I, I, I'm going to talk about from what I read in the scriptures predominantly. And if that's the only thing that you walk away with, that we need to rely on our understanding of, of what's in the scriptures and living by those things, then my work here is done, as they say. That's the one. Susie read us a story of the woman of Samaria at the well. And the chances are that if you started to talk to someone these days about Samaritans, they would look at you rather blankly, or they might assume that you're talking about the welfare agency, the Samaritans. The Samaritans come from a region uh, that was infamous for being at odds with Israel. It was a, a region between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. Its eastern border was demarcated by the Jordan River. And most Jews, as you've heard already, moving between Judea and Galilee, would travel along the eastern bank of the Jordan just to avoid conflict with the Samaritans. When Jesus comes upon the woman at the well, he quickly engages her in a conversation about his need for water and her need for living water. He demonstrates to her his supernatural power by informing her that she's been married six times and that the seventh man she is living with is not her husband. There's some irony in this discussion, and it probably wasn't lost on the audience that first heard Jesus telling the story, because the Jews hated the Samaritans, and they hated them because it stemmed from the fact that they were all descended from, from uh, Jewish heritage, but the Samaritans had intermarried with people of other faiths and other nationalities. And in intermarrying, they had begun to believe heretical things about God. They, would, they were therefore then considered to be unclean. It's there, that's it. The Samaritans are mentioned three times in the New Testament. In Luke 10, Jesus details a story which the reader must assume has some basis of fact. He's being tested by the Pharisees about the command to love your neighbour as yourself. And they ask him, who's your neighbour? And in response, he tells the story we know as the Good Samaritan. A story, as you may remember, which highlights that even the Jew's enemy can sometimes act more graciously and lovingly than a religious Jew. It reminds us everyone is our neighbour. And then in chapter 17 of Luke, uh, the, the rec records that Jesus is healing 10 leprous people. And though all of them were healed... Only one of the healed people returned to Jesus to praise God for the healing done. 
And as you guessed it, it was the Samaritan who was the only one to turn up and show and pay respect to Jesus. In chapter 4 of John, our reading this morning, the story of Jesus entering into the territory of Samaria on the pretext of the disciples needing to to buy food and he needing a drink of water. They stop at the well, at Jacob's well. And he waits for a woman. Nothing Jesus does is by random or chance. It's all by deliberate intention. Three references, the three references to the Samaritans, three redeeming stories that show their traditional foe, the Samaritan, as behaving in a more godly way than their fellow religious Jews. Last week, Ty reminded us that God is by nature hospitable and that he values people over things. This morning, I hope to connect the idea with the concept of outreach. God is always looking to enter into the life of people. No matter what your circumstance, no matter how far from God you feel you are, God is still seeking to enter into a life with you. And God uses us, his people, to introduce other people to himself. The background to John chapter 4 is John is in, of John is to say that Jesus had attracted some unwanted attention from the authorities in Judea because he was baptizing in so big such big numbers. And to avoid the Pharisees and, and wanting to avoid conflict, Jesus chooses to leave Judea and head to Galilee. Because Jesus had chosen the most direct route, he was going to end up passing through Samaria. And he came to the town of Sychar, which means end. Means end. And so I kind of think that the woman has come to her end. She, she says to Jesus, well, you've got no equipment to uh, pull water for yourself. She probably thought he'd come to his end. But at this point, she gets very quickly the idea that she has come to her end. She's got a life that's pretty unhappy. Part of the reason why she was there alone was that the time of day she was there was not the typical day, time of day. She was fitting in, fitting in because people would probably reject her because of the life she's been leading. Most Jews would have avoided Samaria and travelled up the east bank of the Jordan. Jesus seems to have gone out of his way to enter into the territory for one purpose. He wanted to give hope to a lone and outcast woman. He waits alone at the well while the disciples go into town to get food. We find in this exchange all we need to know about outreach. Firstly, Jesus seeks out another at his inconvenience and at his own personal risk. He enters into a land which is not comfortable. He doesn't wait for someone to knock on his door. 
he seeks out this person. Two, he places, he selects a place and a time to have a conversation with the woman on his own, one-on-one, out in public. Three, Jesus makes, makes himself known to the Samaritan woman through his own need of water. He makes himself vulnerable. He puts himself in her debt. And why does he do that? Well, I think he does that because it puts her at ease with him. They're mortal enemies or their, their cultures are at odds with each other. And he says, well, I need water and you've got it. You can give it to me. That opens up the conversation. He doesn't present himself as a perfect uh, person, though he was. He, he puts himself out there as somebody who has a physical need. For the conversation does not pussyfoot around, nor does it turn a blind eye to the reality of the woman's life. It's an honest exchange. But... It does not impart a judgment on the woman. And in this non-judgmental setting, she responds. The conversation opens up. Five, the Holy Spirit convicts the woman. And she rushes home to share the good news with others. And surprise, surprise, verse 39, she report, it's reported, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did, ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two extra days. From one conversation, many have now been saved. And because of his words, many more became believers. At Sychar's well, Jesus met a person who was at the end of themselves. They had made a mess of their life, but through meeting Jesus, she experienced real hope, probably for the first time. People can live in a small town under enormous uh, judgment of other people. And I'm sure she would have been a person who was at the outer edges of acceptability in that, in that town. Now she had a hope, hope that does not disappoint and which motivates the sharing of Jesus with others in her own town immediately. He told me everything that, I ever had, that I'd ever done. And her testimony is contagious. The scriptures don't exactly spell out what happened over the next two days, but it's clear word had got around that these Jewish outsiders were being welcomed into the kingdom of God in numbers. Sometimes we feel that sharing is too hard. We doubt that we have the right words. We fear the reaction of other peop uh, the other person we are sharing it with. But it is completely natural to share this good news with people that we develop a good friendship with. It might be a conversation that you just establish on a train, 
Or it might be a relationship you've had for years. But if it doesn't arise in your chest, the need and the desire and the passion to share Jesus with people, then we would need to ask ourselves a few very serious questions. Let me share with you a, a method. And um, this method, I'm sure you've been trained in lots of different kinds of methods of how to share the gospel. The four spiritual laws, maybe the coloured bead bracelet. It's not only the method of communicating that is important, but also the selection of the people we choose to share the message with. In the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 5, we get the sense that we are, we are to search for people open to the hearing of God's word. It does not advocate debates with hostile people. It simply says, when you enter a house, first say, peace on to the house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your, pre, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around house to house. The King James Version calls these people the son of peace. So who, are the, who is the person of peace in your life? The co-worker, the neighbour, the son, the daughter, spouse, the stranger met along the way. I'm sure that God will deliver some of us into the company of such a person this week. Look with expectant eyes and ears. Having made a selection of a person of peace willing to receive, then we need to determine how to deliver the message of the gospel. One of the current methods that may work for you is called the three circles. This method is uh, particularly useful when sitting down with someone. It's not really something you can do on the run necessarily. You need to really have a visual representation. A good venue for such a, a presentation of the gospel would be uh, in a lunchroom, coffee shop, in the kitchen, somewhere where you've got a table, somewhere you can sit with someone. And the perfect trigger to start the conversation is the conversation which I'll guarantee, put your hands up if you had a conversation with someone this week that said, the world's gone to the pack. If you've had a conversation with someone this week where they've said, yes, I thought there'd be a few arms. Somewhere along the lines, people will always tell you how badly people are behaving. The world's gone mad. We're all doomed. It's easy to join the pity party and agree. And I'm guilty more than often to, because I can see, as you can see, that the world is not how God intended it to be. But if we agree with them and we offer nothing else, what are we doing? Here is a way to turn the conversation to a hopeful conclusion. It's not earth-shatteringly different but um, it is a simple way to explain things. So I don't know if I'm going to have any success making these move. Am I going to have any success? No. So I'll get you to move the first one. 
Oh, we've got one. That was that me? Yeah. Well, it's not happening up there. <laughs> okay. So the first thing that you say to the person, or, or they've already said it to you, is that the world is pretty, pretty a, a big mess. And we call this brokenness, that we're in a world of brokenness. And people identify with that more than they would identify with sin. And no matter how we try to fix things up, those little curly bits on the outside might be your uh, job, it might be your moral way of living, it might be family connectedness, it might be all those things, but they are not going to bring restitution to, to what it is that God has got. So God created a perfect design. So in contrast to the brokenness, God created a perfect design. And ah, so sin is is the thing that causes this brokenness, and because because this brokenness exists, to get we really what we all desire, even the people working hard to make a lot of money, to um, look for fame, or to build you know, uh, an empire of some kind, they're all looking for restoration of their lives. And it is amazing to look at all the billionaires and trillionaires there are in the world who are miserable beyond belief despite their earthly riches because this model says restoration's not possible from our, our own efforts. But God being a loving God, um, he provides us with a way to be restored and it is through the relationship with Jesus. Jesus' death upon the cross pays for our sins and from that his resurrection delivers us forgiveness of our sins so that we no longer have to be burdened by them. We can then be restored to God. And Part of that restoration process is growth. If you are a restored person and you are in a relationship with Jesus, then there should be signs of growth. I'm constantly going around my garden to assess at this time of year, is there any hope for this plant? I have a tipachina at the moment and I don't know if you know anything about gardening, I know very little. But this tipachina I have faith in and it's, it's died down to the, to the bottom two years in a row from frost. So this year I'm covering it in plastic to try and preserve it, to protect it. But signs of growth are what I'm looking for in the new, new year. Green leaf, a few more inches on, the, on the, the stem of the plant. We are needing to assess our own growth in maybe not the same terms, but we need to be looking for those signs of growth. If I had the time, and I don't, I would give you each a piece of paper and let you practice that diagram. And maybe in the times, if you have a piece of paper and a pen, you copy the diagram down or try and remember it, one or the other. Um, but it's a, it's a useful way of communicating with people. But what if, um, what if they only accept part of the story? You know, they, you get to halfway through that and they've got an issue. Or you run out of time. 
the, the train gets to the station and you've, you're interrupted. Well, you could take up that opportunity in a future time. Unless, of course, they, they are urgently convicted by, by the Spirit and they ask you, look, I need to know more. Then retrace your steps, go back through the approach and, and, and help them find the, find the way. Because we have this key to eternal life, there may be a temptation to keep applying the key to every door that comes past you. Can I say, ask you to resist that temptation? I know that there are twos and fro's for this argument because we know of people, man who got out in the street in Sydney and just said, do you know where if you die tonight whether you go to heaven or hell? And he saved hundreds of thousands of lives just by asking that one question. But can I say that, that and to have an enter into the life of somebody it has to be a, a genuine relationship you're establishing. And pestering people isn't necessarily a genuine... You know, if someone says, can I borrow your mower, and you say no, and, uh, and I'm not talking about anyone in particular, um, if, if, if they keep coming back and asking and asking, your answer's probably not going to change, is it? Because you, you, you sort of harden your heart to the message. So a genuine relationship requires that there be soft-heartedness on their part and our part. Now, the logical next step you might take with people is to read the Bible with them. Invite them to read it with you. And create a situation where you invite them for a cuppa and you're reading the Bible. Whatever it takes, get them into the Word of God. And the reason we do that is because reading the Bible is of its own volition, powerful and strong. God's word speaks to the condition of every human life. And we can talk about all the fancy systems of explaining the gospel to people, but unless they're reading into the word of God and getting the, 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 the spirit of God can't, is, is being hampered, I suspect, in some cases, by, by non-reading. And I'll get to that in a minute. But reading the Bible could be an alternative first step. I've heard of people who have been... I, I remember a guy I was on Bible uh, Beach Mission with and, and uh, actually he's Arthur's brother-in-law. And he started opening the word of God to Muslims in his workplace. And it started as a, uh, a process of... I'll show you mine if you show you yours. And as they went along, little by little, he had a, lot of, he had a big problem because people were starting to believe him and the, the stronger Muslims were starting to be quite fearful of the fact that his word, the word of God was actually changing Muslim believers into Christians because they were reading the word of God. It wasn't necessarily Tom's very eloquent conversation that was making the difference. It was the power of the word of God. Charles Spurgeon, um, the English Baptist preacher, although he, I think he withdrew from the Baptist church at some point in, in, in his career, but he said it's the whole job of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. doesn't get much more obvious to you than that, that he meant it's not Luke's job, Mike's job, it's everybody's job. Everybody's job 
is to make sure everybody knows that Jesus is alive and that he saves. I'm going to read a little extract um, from a lecture that Spurgeon wrote in 1870s. In his 1877 inaugural address to his pastoral college entitled The Evils of the Present Age and How to Meet Them, we could write one of those today, couldn't we? Uh, Charles Spurgeon admonishes his students to preach the gospel as the only true cure for societal evils such as superstition, belief, isolation and drunkenness. Well, we could add drugs and sex and all the other pornography and all the other things that are the evils today. Too often, by focusing on such evils, ministers of the gospel are tempted to forget, if they ever knew, that it is the gospel and the gospel alone that can change the world for better. Spurgeon knew this well and was fanatical about teaching his students to think likewise. After asking how various evils uh, that were prevalent in the 19th century England were to be addressed, Spurgeon then understood so clearly that in, uh, sorry, to the, the point is that that Spurgeon understood so clearly uh, that one of the modern ministers of, and churches must reclaim it today, that the gospel changes everything and Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world. The gospel genuinely changes everything. Thus we must fight every temptation to deviate from preaching Jesus Christ himself crucified. By recognising the connection between the person and the work of our Lord to every situation in life, we must never be satisfied to give lip service and techniques or steps and suggestions or even just to commend godly standards, which is what i kind of been doing, so I kind of feel a little bit condemned by that. He must, in and through everything else, proclaim the fullness of Jesus Christ repeatedly thoroughly, consistently and comprehensively. He then says that Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, who was born about 400 years before Jesus, records that in Sicily the herbs of the woods and fields smell so sw exceedingly sweetly that dogs lose all scent of their prey and so they are unable to hunt. Let us be aware of such herbs in our world. I'm fascinated with music. This is me now speaking. I'm fascinated by music, poetry, science and the natural world. But I don't want to be so distracted by the world that I lose my scent for the things of God. I hope we will all prove to be dogs of so keen a scent that the perfume of nothing in this world shall prevent us from following closely after the souls of men for whom we pursue at our master's bidding. What lures us away from, this, from sharing? Fear. I know kids at school who have a real hard time, but probably no harder than, than us in our own walks. They fear about being rejected. They fear about being considered less popular. They fear a lot of things, and so do we. The reverse is also true. I saw a YouTube clip, and you may have too, recently where an owner of a dog returned home after being in hospital for some months. The dog, upon being reintroduced to its owner, was very wary and skittish and confused, 
refusing to go anywhere near the, the owner. This looks like my master, but his scent does not. Probably smelt like the hospital. Um, it took much reassurance of the owner before the dog ignored the scent of the, and came closer to embrace the owner. If people are wary of our approach, it may be that we just don't smell right. <laughs> I'm sure on occasions I certainly don't. That is, our walk does not match our talk. There is a warning here for me as a speaker. I don't want to be in danger of reducing outreach to a method that relies on our own effort far from it. My hope today is to emphasise these things. They are mirrored in Jesus' approach to the woman at the well. Firstly, let's pursue a closer relationship with Jesus. Let not the scent of this world distract us from the hunt for the lost. Two, Jesus sought out the most unlikely recipients of the gospel and so should we. Have open eyes and ears. Three, Jesus established a relationship first that was genuine and not manipulative. He made time to connect with a stranger and the effect was multiplied. Let's do the same. Four, Jesus went out of his way to avoid conflict and argument as far as it was possible. He knew that too much time and energy can be wasted trying to prove a point. Be strategic by spending time with others, developing your relationship with them so that you can introduce them to Jesus. Five, that through a method, though a method is helpful to explain the gospel, the word of God is of its own powerful and able to reach the coldest heart through the Holy Spirit. And lastly, never accept the impossibility of anyone coming to salvation, but don't make a burden for yourself if your explanation is rejected repeatedly. Seek the people of peace. They are just like the Samaritan woman at the well. They are nearby, engaged in some part of your life, and they're willing to listen. So let's go out this week and find them. I didn't bring... Yes, I did. I thought I'd just... Why I chose this um, passage was because I... Three weeks ago, I went down to... Um, in an afternoon to... At Ty's church to hear what he'd said about... He'd been away to an outreach kind of themed thing, which I didn't know at that time I was going to be doing outreach. And he, he talked about the method uh, of finding people of peace. And then I, that night, I, I found, uh, I have a friend that I rode across Australia with last year who runs a thing called Gospel Chariots, and they run 20 trucks, I think I've told you about this before, 20 trucks across 20 nations of Africa, and all they do is preach the gospel, preach the word, set up Bible schools, get, get small groups functioning. And uh, he, here was George preaching in a village in Nigeria in the middle of the back box. What was he preaching? He was preaching exactly, find people of peace. 
he was using the same methodology that we've just been looking at. And then last night I looked up and here's George's last note and I have to read it as it is. Um, he is, is an Afrikaans so he, he writes in a kind of um, shorthand English, so that's the best way I'll describe it. Amen, Bagane and Mabina have reported the following breaking new ground, positive response in the area. One old man was, uh, pr what we prayed for last time is now praising God because he feels so much better after our last prayer. He walks with a walker. It's wonderful seeing people excited and receiving us. We had a family of four people who said they have, no, they have not been to church for five years now. They are willing to pray with us and want to know where we, uh, uh, where we worship. Pray for us as we love and listen uh, to them and connect with them through prayer and the word of God. Amen, Bagani. And then they, they are people of peace. That house of peace that is spoken in Luke 10, 1 to 11. Thank you, Lord. Thank you all involved. And I took that as an affirmation and confirmation that I should bring that message, um, but I only got that last night. So it's happening all over the world. And the great encouragement I draw from seeing what George puts up every week is that across the whole continent of Africa, there are people turning to Jesus. And we're getting told how, you know, Woe is us in the West because our churches are shrinking. So outreach is the way. God's word and introducing Jesus is how we're going to do it. So let's, um, I'll close in prayer and we'll finish with um, the last song which, Bob, I've got it, lost my piece of paper here. Go forth, in his name. Go forth in his name. How appropriate is that? So let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Thank you that you've given us the word. Thank you, Jesus, that you uh, enable us to go out into this world and be your hands and feet, the salt and light in this world. And we pray, Father, that uh, George's ministry in Africa will, will continue to bear the fruit and that it's encouraging to us to know that it can happen here too. Amen.